Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, if it's just gone 10 past 2 on a Wednesday afternoon, that means that we are back in each other's company. It's Rabbi Michael Katz here with Judaism 101.9 and great to be together with you on this beautiful, beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in Joburg. What I'd like to do today is something a little bit different on Judaism 101.9, perhaps deal with a topic that we have never really touched on before. Um, but before we do that, let's look back in history at this date. Today is the 22nd day in the month of Sivan, 22nd day of Sivan. Now, interestingly enough, the Torah tells us that in the year 1312, before the Common Era, so going back, of course, uh, three and a half thousand years ago, um, when the Jewish people, of course, were in the desert. Today is the date that marks when Miriam, Moses' sister, who spoke and uh, spoke ill and of him and of his relationship, of his wife, etc. There seems to have been some Loshan horror that went on there. And Miriam uh, got Taras. She got this leprosy, the ailment that came out from people speaking ill of each other. And she was banished. She was sent out of the camp. And the Jewish people had to stay put um, until Miriam was once again <coughs> reincorporated into the camp. They would not move. They could not move without Miriam being healed. And it, in fact, occurred in last week's parasha where we spoke about the um, methodology or the way of healing that Hashem uh, granted Miriam. And he said those famous words, Kel no, refa no lo, five words of healing. Kel no, refa no lo, that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu um, um, said to God. And God responded, of course, by healing Miriam. That prayer may she be healed, is something that perhaps has uh, given us foundation for understanding that our prayers at time when people, when a time when people are not well, actually help, they assist. Now we know that today is uh, a time where unfortunately we've been through so many ailments and illnesses and uh, problems in and around our community and uh, the broader world community. <coughs> Uh, during this last year and a half of the pandemic and so on. And when we think about all of that, um, people have been saying Tehillim. There are all sorts of Tehillim groups and rolling Tehillim and so on. And one often possibly could think, you know, like sort of what is the point? And I think that it all stems back, it all goes back to the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu understood and the Jewish people understood that um, when we storm the heavens, when we bring God our supplications, when we come to God with our prayers, when we ask God to heal people, when we ask him to have Rachmanus, to have mercy on those who are suffering with ailments, with illnesses, with all sorts of difficulties, that not only does it help, but the whole Jewish people, in a sense, also comes to some kind of a standstill until such time as then Miriam had to be reincorporated into the camp, but until such time as these ailments have been healed. And therefore, it is with that kind of a thought that we also think about all those who are not well and wish them all a refua shlema. May they be healed very, very speedily, immediately. And may all of these difficulties that people have had to confront during a COVID, uh, during the coronavirus, during this pandemic, may they all be taken away from us immediately. Kel no, refa no lo, may she be healed, but may each and every one of the people who we pray for be healed as well. 
What I'd like to do today is uh, to take a look at and put under the spotlight for a moment the concept of secret codes in the Torah. Um, it was given some popularity some years back when um, people wrote all sorts of books and uh, perhaps going a step too far where they were taking the codes of Torah and making all sorts of predictions. Now, Jewish thought on the studying of codes is recognition of the fact that they are there. There are the most incredible codes within the Torah that are fascinating, that are um, sometimes explicable, sometimes inexplicable. But we certainly don't use them in order to predict, in order to try and be prophets. That is not our way. That's not what we're allowed to do. We can look back and we can see certain things that perhaps seem to have been referenced in Torah um, through all sorts of codes, all sorts of interesting codes, and there are fascinating ones at that. And particularly one of the codes that was very well employed always is the concept of gematria, of the numerical values of letters. Now in Torah, in uh, Hebrew, we know that there are letters, the letters of the alphabet, the letters of the alphabet, but those letters each carry with them a numerical value as well. In Hebrew, there are only the letters. There are no numerals. Each letter represents a number. So an aleph is one, a bet is two, a gimel is three, a dalet is four, and so on, until we get to 11. 11 is yud and aleph, which is 10 and 1. 12 is yud bet, and so on. And then when we get to 20, chaf is 20, chaf aleph is 21, chaf bet is 22, and so on. We keep on going through the alphabet, and then we come to the letter um, kuf, which is 100, and then the resh, which is 200, and then shin, which is 300, and taf, the last letter of the alphabet, which is 400. And interestingly enough, unless um, um, our founding uh, sages and the Torah itself has got it all wrong, which we know that it hasn't, there is no need for any other uh, uh, numbers at all. Those are the numbers that you need and combinations of them make up the larger numbers. And then what is done in the point of gematria is that when you take a word and a certain word that adds up when you take the word and you take its numerical value, its number value, in other words, taking each letter and giving it a number value and adding all those numbers together and you get a conclusive number whatever that number may be, and you find another word, there is another word that perhaps is made up of different letters, but the number totals the same. There is a correlation, according to the rules of gematria, according to the rules of numerical value coding, numerical value equation, there is a correlation between those words, whether we like it or we don't like it, and it is very often a fascinating study to see how words that add up to the same numerical value actually have much more than just their numerical value in common. So one of the codes of Torah is the idea of gematria. But I'd like to share with you today two special codes that I think you will find fascinating. One of them is to do with our chagim, with our festivals. The festivals um, all occurring as they do throughout the Jewish year, the calendar year, our Chagim, including Pesach, 
and Shavuot and Sukkot and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Purim um, and uh, then some, all of them have a an interrelationship that is beyond what you would ever have imagined possible. There is something incredibly, um, it's, it, it's mind-blowing, the connection between all these Chagim. They, in fact, all work as a block. Now, I've told you before on the show that if we take the old Chagim, we realize that they are all the same distance from each other, um, no matter which way we um, strip down and look at the Jewish calendar. They are the same distance. Now, part of the equation here is the fact that Pesach is pushed later in the year in order to accommodate the second Adar in a leap year. And therefore from Pesach through to the last Chag, which um, in the, in the, in the calendar, let's call it Simchat Torah, that um, system is something that works as a block. They are the same distance from each other. There are 49 days from Pesach to Shavuot, from Shavuot to Rosh Hashanah is 110 days, 10 days from uh, um, Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, and so on. And so it all works as a block. But I'd like to explore with you in a secret code how there is an even deeper relationship between all of these Chagim. Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So, as I told you, there is a tremendously strong link between all the Chagim. And that is what we're putting under the spotlight today on Judaism 101.9 Chai FM. Yes, Judaism 101.9 um, with Rabbi Michael Katz here on Wednesday afternoon. We're talking about certain codes, and there are certain codes that are employed, certain codes that uh, fascinatingly keep on cropping up throughout Torah. <coughs> and one of them has got to do with the days of the week on which the Chagim, on which the festivals actually occur. So let's put in a couple of riders here. Let's give you a few um, important bits of information. First of all, we know that Yom Kippur cannot occur on a Sunday, on a Tuesday, or on a Friday. Yom Kippur cannot occur on a Sunday, on a Tuesday, on a Friday. Now, if we put that into our thinking caps and understand um, that since Yom Kippur cannot be on those days, it actually means that all the Chagim, all the festivals, because, as we said, they are always the same distance from each other, it means that all the festivals can only occur on four days of the week. There are only four options for each of the festivals. Now, of course, we're not talking about the festival that has seven days or eight days in it because then it occurs on any day of the week. But we're talking about the first day of the festival, let's say, or the second day of the festival. It will only be on four optional days of, of each week, of any week, rather. There are certain um, dates, therefore. So if we take, for instance, that um, Yom Kippur cannot be on a Sunday, on a Tuesday, or on a Friday, it will mean that Rosh Hashanah and the days of Rosh Hashanah always match those of Sukkot, and they always match those of uh, Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. So they are on the same days of the week, a couple of weeks apart. So that means that Rosh Hashanah can never be on a Friday Shabbos, because that would make Yom Kippur on a Sunday. It can never be 
on a Sunday, Monday, because that would make Yom Kippur on a Tuesday. And it can never be on a Wednesday, Thursday, because that would make Yom Kippur on a Friday. It just works like that. And therefore, because Rosh Hashanah cannot be on those days, so Sukkot and so Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah also cannot be from the, on those days. But in fact, we're told that there is a very, very fascinating code for how we can work it all out, because we know that the first of the festivals, as positioned by Hashem, by God, and His instruction to the Jewish people to keep the Chagim, to keep the festivals in their right places, in their right times of each year, actually all stems from Pesach. And so Pesach is kind of the yardstick. Pesach sets the standard, so to speak, for the entire year's Chagim and the days of the week on which they will occur. Now remember here, we're going to be looking Interestingly enough, at the days of the week of the Chagim in a solar year, because um, that is just the way that they are all going to line up according to this code. It's in a solar year or in what we would know as a secular year. Um, so we're looking then at all the festivals perhaps that would occur in the year, let's, for example, say now 2021. So let's have a look at it. Let's think about if we were to take Pesach this year. This last year, in other words, 2021, the Pesach that we have just celebrated, we know that the first day of Pesach was actually a Sunday. The second day of Pesach then was a Monday, third day, a Tuesday, and so on throughout the week. Now, interestingly enough, there is a fascinating Jewish code or way of deciphering certain things in Torah that are known as the Atbash code. Why Atbash? Atbash means, literally, that if you were to take the Hebrew alphabet and write it out on a straight line, get the midpoint and fold it in half, you would then match up the letters, and then the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet would match with the last letter. That is At. Aleph would match with Taf, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Bash is Bet, the second Hebrew of the alphabet, will match with Shin, the second last letter. And so we keep on going. There is a synchronicity, there is a um, an equality in a way, in certain regards, between these letters. The first letter matches with the last, the second letter matches with the second last, the third letter with the third last, and so on. This is the way this Atbash code actually works. Now, interestingly, if we take this Atbash code and we apply it to the Chag, to the festival of Pesach, and the days of the week on which um, Pesach occurs in any given year, and interestingly enough, we'll be able to, through this code, tell us the days of the week on which every one of the festivals in that calendar year will occur, have occurred, or will occur in the future. Amazed? Yes, it is amazing. Let's take a look at it. If we're to take the letter Aleph and marry it with the letter Taf, as we have said before, and draw that equation between them. So let's take a Jewish festival or a Jewish date that starts with the letter Taf. And there is only one of them, and that is Tisha B'Av. Interestingly enough, because of the Atbash code, we understand that Aleph of Pesach, the first day of Pesach, will always correspond, will always be the same in that year, as Tisha B'Av in that particular year. So now you can bank it. 
if Pesach this year, as it did occur on a Sunday, was the first day of Pesach, Tisha B'Av in that year, in this year, will also be on a Sunday. Amazed? We can go further. The letter Bet corresponds with the letter Shin. Which Jewish festival has the letter Shin at its beginning? We just celebrated it a couple of weeks ago, Shavuot. If the second day of Pesach, or marrying to the second day of Pesach, so like this year, second day of Pesach, we said was a Monday. If the Monday of the second day of Pesach is when Pesach occurred, Shavuot in that year will also be, the first day will be on a Monday. Amazed? Aleph Bet, Aleph Taf, Bet Shin, that's the way that it works. But we can go further. The third day of Pesach. So the third day of Pesach this year would have been a Tuesday, right? Third day of Pesach would have been a Tuesday. Now, here we've got Gimel will relate to the third last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Resh, the letter Resh. Which festival with a Resh? Rosh Hashanah. So therefore, since Pesach this year, third day, occurred on a Tuesday, in this year, Rosh Hashanah, first day, will be a Tuesday. Amazing. But it goes further. Dalit, the fourth letter. So the fourth day of Pesach this year then would have been a Wednesday. The Dalit of Pesach being a Wednesday will correspond with the fourth last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is Kuf. Now, there is no uh, Chag, there is no Jewish festival that starts with the letter Kuf. Safe to say that there is Simchat Torah, which celebrates the Kriyat HaTorah, which starts with the letter Kuf. And yes, you're going to tell me it's a hop and a skip and a jump, but it works perfectly because in the uh, calculation of the Atbash code here that we're doing, if the fourth a day of Pesach, as it was this year, is on a Wednesday. Simchat Torah is going to be a Wednesday in this coming year. And we can take it further than that. We can go to the letter He. The fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He will correspond with the fifth last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the fifth last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the letter Tzadik. Tzadik. Now, once again, there is no festival that starts with the letter Tzadik, except Yom Tzum Kippur. Yes, Yom Kippur this year will be on a Thursday because the fifth day of Pesach was a Thursday. And there's one more that we can do as well, and that's the letter Vav. The Hebrew letter Vav means six. The sixth day of Pesach this year is a Friday. The letter Vav um, Friday will correspond with the sixth last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and that is the letter Pei. Now, we've got Pesach, so we're not going to go for Pesach as spelled to the letter Pei, but we are going to go for Purim. And yes, since Pesach, sixth day, was a Friday, Purim in this calendar year was a Friday. It is fascinating because this is just one of the many different codes that we have in order to decipher Certain startling and amazing and and special things in Torah. It's not, once again, as I told you, in order to be predictive, in order to be prophetic, in order to try and tell the future, but rather to look with awe and fascination at just how many deep, profound, and beautiful messages there are within Torah. And it's one such message 
that I would like to unpack for you as well today. In this last week, the past week that we um, read the Parsha of Baal This week we're on Shlach. This past week we read the Parsha of Baal In the Parsha of Baal we read in the beginning all about the menorah. Now the menorah as it's described, the menorah <laughs> as it stood in the Beis HaMikdash, in the temple, as it stood and was designed to stand in the tabernacle, in the Mishkan, in the desert. This menorah had um, some incredibly fascinating features. There is a whole debate as to exactly what it looked like. There is the way that the Rambam describes the menorah, and that is with straight lines, very straight, almost right angular lines of the menorah, kind of V-shaped rather than the rounded shape that we're used to, that is kind of carried on the um, Israeli flag, the emblem of Israel, the state of Israel, that menorah rounded. Now, yes, Rashi does tell us that it was rounded. Um, the Rambam holds that it was straight. And he gives very, very fascinating reasons as to why he says that it was straight. But it seems from the Torah that it's not absolutely directly definitive. Um, but um, each one of these great sages concludes slightly differently. But there's certain parts of the menorah that are identical. Certain parts of the menorah, rather, that there is no debate about, that nobody ever debates, because they are specifically described in the Torah. Now, not in this last week's parasha, in parasha Baal but rather in the book of Shmois, in the book of Exodus, in uh, Truma, where we read all about the description of the menorah. There are certain features of the menorah that were fascinating, and that within them there is a fascinating, fascinating code, which I'd like to unpack with you. We're going to get to that after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, yes, welcome back. Rabbi Michael Katz with Judaism 101.9. Great to be with you this afternoon. We're talking about codes in Torah, not specifically going into deep and uh, uh, predictive codes, which we said uh, we're not going to do and we don't do, but rather thinking about some fascinating things that are borne out by various different numbers in Torah. And yes, now to uh, focus a little bit on the menorah, the menorah that stood in the Beit HaMikdash, the menorah that is described in Parshas Truma, the menorah that um, stood in the Mishkan and was lit by Aaron Akoyan in the Beit in the, in the, in the Mishkan in the desert, and then by the Kohen Gadol, the Kohanim in the temple, stood as a symbol not only of light that is spread outwards, and of the unity and the uniformity of the Jewish people and the beautiful, beautiful image of uh, what the Jewish people actually are and need to be and how our souls um, are uh, kind of compared to those flames that are attached to the wick and the oil, the body, but that the combustion of it all, the fire of it all is brought about through Torah. And there is a very, very interesting, fascinating code in the menorah itself, which points to Torah, to the Torah. Have you ever thought about the fact that the word or and Torah have very, very similar letters? And very often, Torah is compared not only to water, but it's compared to light. It lights the way. It gives us a direction. It gives us a... Uh, a, a much clearer vision of everything that we're supposed to do and everything that we're supposed to have in this world. And of course, 
It is the very, very bond between ourselves and the Almighty, between ourselves and God, between ourselves and our fellow men, between ourselves and the whole world. And so the Torah itself is actually fascinatingly depicted in a very, very real sense by the menorah. Let me show you how. Well, there are several numbers, in fact, five different numbers that we're going to spotlight today, five different numbers that have to do with the menorah. And you can go and check this out in that parsha or take a look at the Rambam's uh, depiction of what the, tor- what the menorah actually looked like or that of Rashi, because in this there is a commonality. There is something very similar. Number one is that the menorah that stood in the Beit HaMikdash in the temple had to have seven branches. You know the style of the menorah, three on the right, three on the left, and one in the middle, the seven branches of the menorah. So the first number that we need to bear in mind is the number seven. If we take a look at the menorah, the menorah itself also had various decorative things on it. And I'm calling them decorative things because they were a number of different things. And what are those things? First of all, they were round balls, round knobs on the menorah. Now, fascinatingly, on the menorah, on the branches of the menorah and then down the main stem, there were a total of 11 knobs, 11 round discs, 11 round balls that were on the stems of the menorah. So the second number that we have to bear in mind is the number 11. Then along each uh, (coughs) branch, on each branch and down the stem of the uh, menorah, there were also little, like flowers, flower designs that uh, went right around the very, very branch or the very stem of the menorah, and they were flower-like decorations. And those flower-like decorations, there were nine of them. Now then, amazingly, the Torah tells us that the menorah itself had to stand 17 handbreadths high. Now, the way that we measured in those days was, yes, it probably came about that uh, people measured, you know, the old system of measuring a foot, and that it was a large man's foot, that was one foot. Today, we've got so used to centimeters and meters and so on that we don't even think about that anymore, but um, there was a foot in the old temple times, in Torah times, there were measurements that were taken from the arm of an average man, and the arm from the elbow to the fingers was called an amma, and the measurement of the width of the hand was called a tefach. Now, the, the menorah had to stand 17 tefachim high, 17 handbreadths high. That was the size, the height of the menorah. So, number four that we need to remember is 17. And then finally, all the way around the menorah, on the main stem as well as on each of the branches, there were several inverted cups. Cups. They looked like cups upside down on the menorah, not standing the right way up, as you would imagine, a cup to hold the oil. That went on the top. That was there. That was fine. But we're talking about decorative inverted cups, several on each branch and several down the middle. And in fact, when we count all the cups, we actually get 22. There were 22 cups. So if we go through the numbers, and I'm not giving you the lotto numbers here, this is 
the number numbers in order. And they are 7, 11, 9, 17, and 22. I'll be back with you right after this to show you how this is a code for something very, very significant in Torah. See you soon. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Before the break, I gave you a whole list of numbers. In fact, five different numbers, which all have significance to the menorah. But they have a significance to Torah as well. And those numbers are 7, 11, 9, 17, and 22. Those are the numbers of the menorah. And it's various decorations, it's various artifacts, it's various symbols. What does it mean in terms of Torah? Well, if you open up a Torah and you go to the very first verse of the Torah, Breshit bara elokim if we take that verse and we count the words of the first verse of the book of Breshit, believe it or not, seven words. Now if we turn to the first verse of the book of Shmot, book of Exodus, and we go to the first verse there, and we count the words, you'll be surprised. Eleven. Eleven words. And then if we go to the third book of the Torah, which is Leviticus, the book of Ayikra, and we take the first verse and we count the words, amazingly, nine words. And then if we go to the fourth book of the Torah, if we go to the book of Bamidbar, and we take a look in the Hebrew, of course, and we count the words, there are seventeen. And now if we go to the book of Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, and we take a look at the very first words, yes, it is a long verse, 22 words. Amazingly, the Torah places, and for reasons that are beyond us, a very, very um, interesting parallel, a very interesting direct correlation between the menorah and our Torah. Our Torah has embedded within it so many codes and so many fascinating twists and turns, so many fascinating things. And here's just one of them, that the various artifacts, the various symbols, the various artistic pieces that were on the menorah in the temple had a connection and a symbolic connection with each one of the books of Torah. And perhaps... Our sages suggest that's why those cups on the menorah were actually inverted. The Torah wasn't meant for us to take and just hold within ourselves. It was meant to be spread outwards. The idea of the cup inverted is that it spills out whatever it holds within. Everything is spread. It is meant to be shared. It is meant to be spread out. And it's meant to not only cast that light within an enclosed space, but actually to cast that light everywhere. And, of course, symbolically and significantly, the job of the Jew is to be a light, not only to ourselves and to our own community, but a light unto the nations. This is, in fact, symbolized in the menorah itself. And so there are so many of these codes, so many wonderful codes that are absolutely fascinating throughout Torah. Let's take a look. Um, ourselves at some of them if you care to and think about just how profound, how beautiful, how deep and how important it actually is to realize the greatness, the absolute um, 
logic-defying and reason-defying greatness of the Torah. Its wisdom is unparalleled. What it contains is absolutely unparalleled. This is God's words that we can take, we can embrace, we can take on board and we can make them part of ourselves and in so doing become that significant light that each and every one of us is capable of and hopefully spread it outwards as well. Looking forward to being back with you same time, same place next week on Judaism 101.9 and it just remains for me to wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead and take good care of yourselves. We'll see you then.